Friday, December the 24th, 1954, Jamaica. Oh, how nice it would be just for today and tomorrow to be a little boy of five instead of an aging playwright of 55 and look forward to all the hijinks with passionate excitement and to be given a clockwork train with a full set of rails and a tunnel. However, it is no use repining. As things are, drink will take the place of parlour games, and we shall all pull crackers and probably enjoy ourselves enough to warrant at least some of the goddamned fuss. The news from home is mainly concerned with disaster, floods and gales and houses collapsing. I am very lucky to be here in the warmth and so will crush down the embittered nausea which the festive season arouses in me and plunge into the gaiety with an adolescent whoop. Noel Coward, writing in his diary with the sadness that Christmas and the end of the year seems invariably to bring out in him. These pages that he wrote mostly for himself are as close as he will allow us to get to his innermost feelings, his changing moods, his loves and hates. Graham Payne lived with Noel Coward for more than 30 years and treasures many shared moments of Coward at play. Well, he wasn't backward in that way, no. He'd come out and say what he thought. <laughs> oh, yes. He certainly did. Ah. And also, well, a lot of them, too, were... were um, meant to be funny. I never, ever, in all the time I knew him, make a crack that would really hurt somebody. He could make a terrible crack knowing that they could take it with their humour, knowing that he was making a joke, you know. Um, like I think I put in the book of the crack he made it to me, one of the last ones, in Jamaica, when for some, he was in the swimming pool, and for some mad reason or other, I started to dance around the edge, and he went off into gales of laughter. And I said, don't laugh, people have paid money to see me sing and dance. And he said, not very many and not for very long. And he, he enjoyed it, but I must say I passed out. I had to laugh then. <laughs> right as true as it may be, I still had to laugh. It was so quick. I mean, the answer was right there like that. But there were several of those sort of cracks he'd make and some other people too. Graham Payne was part of Noel Coward's adopted family, a close-knit group of friends and supporters who shared in his life and his work. This included the designer Gladys Colthrop and Winifred Ashton, who was a playwright, sculptor and painter. She was also the model for Madame Arcati in Blythe Spirit and a legendary dropper of bricks. Winnie makes a forceful appearance in the diaries at the end of 1946. That year saw the post-war reopening of Drury Lane Theatre, and a lavish musical, Pacific 1860, of which Noel Coward was author, composer and director. Saturday, December the 21st, 1946. Went down after the matinee and pepped up the orchestra a bit. Watched the evening performance. It couldn't have gone worse. Nothing got any applause and the theatre was icy. Oh dear, I do so wonder if it's going to be a rousing flop. Gladys had a long heart-to-heart -heart with Winnie last night, with Winnie in floods. So tonight I rang her up, because I have been fond of her for a long time and hate feuds. She was very touched, and then proceeded to spew lovingly all her grievances against me. 
She told me that for the last three years I had been becoming so unbearably arrogant that it's grotesque, that everyone is laughing at me, that I am surrounded by yes-men, that the reason Pacific 1860 is so bad is that I no longer have any touch or contact with people and events on account of my overweening conceit. All this, and a great deal more, said tearfully, vehemently, and from the heart. I said, genuinely enough, that I would try in future not to be so arrogant, and the conversation ended lovingly. Now, what is curious is that I am not cross or upset, and I really should be one or the other. I believe most of what she said was balls. I also think she is stubborn and conceited to a degree approaching mania. I also think that she is large and warm and generous and somehow dreadfully touching. I think my Christ-like reception of her tirade made her feel happier, but I don't know where we go from here. She could tell him if she didn't approve of something, or maybe he'd written something that she didn't care for, or didn't think it was quite up to his usual standard. Naturally, he'd argue back, I suppose, but he'd, he'd think about it because he knew that she was no fool. She'd know what she was talking about, being such an experienced writer herself. In the 1950s, Noel Coward decided to make a permanent home for himself in the Caribbean. He already had one house in Jamaica. Now he set about building himself a bolt hole at Firefly Hill. Friday, April the 15th, 1955. I am tremendously excited about Firefly Hill. It deeply enchants me and is the loveliest place I have ever known. I intend next year to live in it most of the time. It will be a real getaway from my goddamned friends. They can disport themselves at Blue Harbour and keep out of my hair. If all continues to go well financially, I shall build the main house up there, install a swimming pool and pump water up from the sea, and eventually sell Blue Harbour. I believe, with the pool and everything, I should get somewhere between twenty and twenty-five thousand pounds for it. This means that even with all the new building and planning at Firefly, I shall not be out of pocket at all. I regret, dear journal, this unworthy, sordid preoccupation with money, but I have worked hard all my life. I am fully £15,000 overdrawn in London. I am 55 years old, and I fully intend to end my curious days in as much comfort, peace and luxury as I can get. If the great reaper elects to forestall me, I shall at least have had the fun of making the plans, and doubtless somebody will benefit from them. If a great big hydrogen war starts, I shall retire here with as many loved ones as I can persuade to join me and hope for the best, eat yams and pray that the sea doesn't become radioactive enough to bugger up the fish. I have been reading a life of George Eliot. She was a dull, morose, humourless lady with more than a touch of genius. What makes the book so fascinating is the evocation of the period and the people. The Victorian writers certainly made life as difficult for themselves as possible, what with their flaming temperaments and religious misgivings and moralizings and soul-searchings combined with permanent ill-health from lack of air and exercise and overeating. They really had a lot to bear. The fact that most of it was unnecessary obviously couldn't have made the bearing of it any easier. Everything I have read recently has confirmed my long-held suspicion that Christianity has caused a great deal more suffering, both mentally and physically, than any other religion in the history of mankind. 
a wretched virgin being sliced up occasionally on a tribal altar seems small beer compared with the endless succession of tortured, Puritan-ridden generations that have resulted from that unfortunately over-publicized episode at Jerusalem 1955 years ago. I must say it is a little hard on Jesus Christ to be forever associated with such a monumental balls-up. He minded very much about people's feelings about religion. He wasn't religious himself, you know. He never went to church or anything like that, except for a special occasion or something. But he admired the, uh, the power that Jesus Christ had of making people feel secure and safe about the future of their souls. And he minded about that very much. He really did, and seriously. But I mean, he didn't um, go to church and think that was going to help him get in, you know. But basically, you see, he was, for all that quick, sophisticated stuff that's supposed to be with the cigarette holder and the dressing gowns, basically he wasn't like that. Basically. I mean, that was uh, a newspaper image that was built up by a photograph that was taken. But he was a very, very kind-hearted man. And I'm not, I promise you I'm not making that up. Very generously kind. In 1956, Noel Coward made arrangements to cut down on his tax liabilities by establishing his domicile in two British colonies, nominally in Bermuda and physically in Jamaica. This provoked a flurry of journalistic abuse. Thursday, September the 27th, 1956, Dublin. Since I landed at Cherbourg on Monday evening, my life has been made hell by the press. They have badgered me, photographed me, pursued me, telephoned me, and all of them only interested in my tax avoidance. In Dublin, I was subjected to a press carry-on which would have made Marilyn Monroe envious. They asked me sly, bold, insulting, and entirely contemptible questions for over half an hour in the course of which I remained calm, kept my temper, and reiterated that all I had done by giving up my English domicile was to assert my right as an Englishman to live where I chose and how I chose. I was asked, among other idiocies, whether it was true that the Queen, on hearing of my dreadful delinquency, had firmly scratched my name from the next honours list. I was also asked how much in cash I owed the British government. Apparently the play has gone very well, although the English papers have, quite unethically, given it scathing notices. Poor Johnny Gilgood was completely bewildered. He had never had the dubious pleasure of opening a Noel Coward play before. The play was nude with violin, which overcame the press hostility and settled into a long run in the West End. The author's lifelong friends also weighed in with their support. Sunday, June the 23rd, 1957. The week has been acutely social. On Thursday, I coaxed the Mountbattens into a semblance of their former selves. They have both changed beyond recognition. No more humour and an overweening pomposity. It is a shame, but there is obviously nothing to be done. Life goes on and little bits of us get lost. That same evening I drove to Windsor with Teddy Thompson. John Council had sent me two seats for four in hand, a stupid little comedy redeemed by the performance of my godson, Danny Massey. It was a gala performance because the Queen had taken over the theatre for her Ascot house party. 
In the entr'acte, when Teddy and I had settled ourselves in the bar for a drink, a grand uniformed gentleman appeared and said to me, Her Majesty the Queen wishes to see you. So I was led upstairs to a passage behind the circle, where I talked for about twenty minutes to the Queen, Princess Margaret, and the Queen Mother. They were absolutely charming to me, and the Queen Mother, as usual, surpassed herself in saying the right thing. She said, How lovely to see you again. We are most angry on your behalf. For the press to attack your integrity after all you have done for England, both in the country and out of it, is outrageous. But don't let it upset you, and remember that we too have had our troubles with the press. I replied gently that if she wished to reduce me to tears, she was going the right way about it. I do think it was very sweet of them to send for me, and take so much trouble to prove that none of the press beastliness had had the slightest effect on their opinion of me. I am re-reading all my dear E. Nesbitt books, and they seem to me to be more charming and evocative than ever. Her writing is so lovely and unforced, her humour so sure, her narrative quality so strong, that the stories, which I know backwards, rivet me as much now as they did when I was a little boy. All the pleasant memories of my own childhood jump up at me from the pages. I remember Bay Tree Cottage at Meon, and walking across the path through the cornfields to Titchfield to buy the magnet and the gem, I remember exploring for the first time the jungle around Aunt Laura's lake in Cornwall, and the old blue punt, and the creek and the wooden swing in the clearing. I can also recapture clearly the early morning before breakfast bathes at Bognor, and the smell of the seaweed and the smell of bacon frying when we came back to the lodgings. E. Nesbitt knew all the things that stay in the mind, all the happy treasures. I suppose she, of all the writers I have ever read, has given me over the years the most complete satisfaction and, incidentally, a great deal of inspiration. I am glad I knew her in the last years of her life. He just adored those books. The children's books, aren't they, really? You know, and it was the last book he was reading. The night he died, the night before he died. He was reading that, an Inesbitt book. He picked it up again. He'd read them all several times. And he loved her writing and the idea of the mentality, I think. I don't know enough about them to uh, say why, but she got him. You know. He really did worship her. He read more of her than anybody else. Interesting that he was rereading them. Rereading them, them very yes. well. So they were like yes. old friends. Yes. So he seemed to have the feeling that she understood perfectly what children went through, you know, what we've all gone through, and we forget as we grow up. But she put it down on paper and he would reread it. Thursday, May the 1st, 1958. My financial affairs seem to be blossoming. This certainly justifies the change of residence, all right. But there is no doubt about it, I miss Europe. Not England, particularly, in fact, very little, but being on the other side of the Atlantic. I have a strong affection for America and for many Americans, but these last six months have sickened me, rather. It seems to me that all their values are wrong and getting even more so. The future of the world seems hazardous in the extreme. The nuclear war, I suppose, if once it started, could destroy most, if not all, the life on the globe. In fact, it is hard to imagine, considering the inherent silliness, cruelty and superstition of the human race, how it has contrived to last as long as it has. 
The witch-hunting, the torturing, the gullibility, the massacres, the intolerance, the wild futility of human behaviour over the centuries is hardly credible. And the laws, as they stand today, are almost inconceivably stupid. With all this brilliant scientific knowledge of atom-splitting and nuclear physics, etc., we are still worshipping at different shrines, imprisoning homosexuals, imposing unnecessary and completely irrelevant restrictions on each other, Hearts can be withdrawn from human breasts, dead hearts, and after a little neat manipulation, popped back again as new. The skies can be conquered, Sputniks can whiz around the globe and be controlled and guided. People are still genuflecting before crucifixes and Virgin Marys, still persecuting other people for being coloured or Jewish, or in some way different from what they apparently should be. There are wars being waged at this very moment in Indonesia, Algeria, the Middle East, Cyprus, etc. The Pope still makes pronouncements against birth control. The Ku Klux Klan is still ready to dash out and do some light lynching. God, for millions of people, is still secure in his heaven, and My Fair Lady opened in London last night. The 1960s saw Noel Coward back in Europe, with a new home in Switzerland. From his mountain top in Montreux, he surveyed a changing world. Sunday, October the 29th, 1961. I am rising 62, whether I like it or not, and it is perfectly possible that I am out of touch with the times. I don't care for the present trends, either in literature or the theatre. Pornography bores me, squalor disgusts me, garishness, vulgarity and commonness of mind offend me, and problems of social significance on the stage, unless superbly well presented, to me are the negation of entertainment. Subtlety, discretion, restraint, finesse, charm, intelligence, good manners, talent and glamour still enchant me. Is it because I am so much older that I am unable to distinguish these qualities in the majority of present-day books I read and shows I see? Am I falling into the famous trap of nostalgie du temps perdu? Have I really, or at least nearly, reached the crucial moment when I should retire from the fray and spend my remaining years sorting out my memories and sentimentalising the past at the expense of the present? The same theme recurs throughout the diary entries of the late 50s and early 60s, in which the diarist reviews new plays and new trends in the theatre. I have just read Look Back in Anger by John Osborne, and it is full of talent and fairly well constructed, but I wish I knew why the hero is so dreadfully cross, and what about. I should also like to know how, where, and why he and his friend run a sweet stall, and if, considering the hero's unparalleled capacity for invective, they ever manage to sell any sweets. I expect my bewilderment is because I am very old indeed and cannot understand why the younger generation, instead of... I went with Binky to see two soi-disant plays by Mr. Harold Pinter. They were completely incomprehensible and insultingly boring, although fairly well acted. It is the surrealist school of non-playwriting. Apparently... I wonder how long this trend of dreariness for dreariness's sake will last... Apparently, in the minds of the critics and the intelligentsia, significance and importance can only be achieved by concentrating on unhappiness, psychopathic confusion and general dismay. No lightness is possible. I have just read, very carefully, Waiting for Godot, and in my considered opinion, it is pretentious gibberish without any claim to importance whatsoever. 
It's just a waste of everybody's time, and it made me ashamed to think that such balls could be taken seriously. I went to the Sound of Music with Jeanette Spanier. There were too many nuns careering about and crossing themselves and singing jaunty little songs, and there was, I must admit, a heavy pall of Jewish Catholic schmaltz enveloping the whole thing. But it was far more professional, melodic and entertaining than any of the other musicals. I have written a 2,500-word article on the new movement in the theatre, which really is rather good, I think. When I've done one or two more, I shall send them to the Sunday Times and later use them as the nucleus of a book on theatre. I think by now my age and experience entitle me to write one. I have been plodding through the works of Beckett, Wesker, etc., all filled with either pretentious symbolism or violent left-wing propaganda, and none with any merit. I have also been gallantly persevering with Stanislavski's An Actor Prepares. It's in tolerably turgid and dull, and completely devoid of humour. It really is staggering to think of all those earnest young American would-be thespians poring over this soggy, pseudo-intellectual poppycock and taking it for gospel. However, I shall touch lightly on this in my next little essay. His researches also took him to the actor's studio in New York to meet the guru of method acting, Lee Strasberg. The high spot of my stay was a morning spent at the actor's studio, which was far more hilarious than I had ever imagined it to be. Lee Strasberg, God, sits with a henchman on either side of him and a tape recorder at his feet so that no pearl that drops from his lips should be lost. We saw, first of all, a young man, very grubby, crawling about the floor, making guttural noises, and apparently trying to stab a gramophone which was playing one of his mother's records. His mother was apparently Maria Callas. After he had grunted and slithered about for about twenty minutes, he slithered off up some steps, then reappeared and sat opposite Mr. Strasberg and explained, completely inaudibly, what he had been trying to do. After this orgy of pretentious time-wasting, Geraldine Page and a Mr. Gervais obliged with a scene from Morning Becomes Electra. This was really unbelievable. They were only a few yards away, and I only caught about one word in ten. Never have I seen such affected, downright inept acting. When they had finished, they settled down to explain themselves and to be talked to by God, and I suddenly got enraged and went out. It is this monumental nonsense which is spreading like a disease over the American theatre. What is so maddening is that out of it have emerged some good actors. But my guess is that talent, true talent, can survive anything. We didn't approve of it at all. Thought it was all phony and false. You cannot do that. We wouldn't take to it at all. That he, he was really quite firm about that. You got him onto that one. Is a using the four-letter words. It's a lot of balls, and uh, forget it. Forget it, they're wasting their time. Did anybody ever teach him about acting? No, I think it was his own mental observation. He was lucky enough to play with good people. I mean, like he admits, Charles Hawtrey, who was that big star of that period, this wonderful comedian, he used to watch him as a kid, when he was a kid, no, and learnt a lot of technique, stage technique, by watching the really good ones and taking it in and going to the theatre a lot and studying what they were doing and how they were doing it and what it really meant. And I think that's how he learnt, apart from his own talent that he had, 
but he could pick up stuff and learn. Because he had this marvellous thing of speed on stage, but you never missed a word he said, although it was fast, it was very, very clear. And his comedy was very strong, very funny. In 1961, Noel Coward made his farewell to Broadway with the musical Sail Away. He wrote the words and the music, directed the production and even designed the poster. The script reflected his passion for travel, his love of the sun, his loathing for tourists and his horror of old age. Thursday, November the 2nd, 1961, Jamaica. Ah me, this growing old, this losing of friends and breaking of links with the past. One by one they go, a bit chipped off here, a bit chipped off there. It is an inevitability that one must prepare the heart and mind for. I wonder how long it will be before I make my last exit. Probably quite a while. Both mum and father had long lives. I shall probably live to see many other more poignant deaths. I suppose I should envy the afterlife believers, the genuflectors, the happy ever after ones who know beyond a shadow of doubt that we shall all meet again in some celestial vacuum, but I don't. I'd rather face up to finality and get on with life, lonely or not, for as long as it lasts. Those I have really loved are still with me in moments of memory, whole and intact and unchanged. If I were to see darling mum again, which phase of her should I choose? The last sad months when she was deaf and nearly blind? The earlier years when she was vital and energetic and frequently maddening? Or the earlier still years when I was tiny and she was my whole world? It's all too complicated. I'll settle without apprehension for oblivion. I cannot really feel that oblivion will be disappointing. Coley and I had a long and cosy talk about death the other evening, sitting up here watching the dark come and waiting for the fireflies to appear. He is so sensible. We discussed what would happen if I died and what would happen if he died, and came to the sensible conclusion that there was nothing to be done. We should have to get on with life until our turn came. I said, after all, the day had to go on and breakfast to be eaten and he replied that if I died he might find it a little difficult to eat breakfast, but would probably be peckish by lunchtime. Because his birthday fell at the end of the year, the December entries in Noel Coward's diaries often reflect a mood of philosophic retrospection. Thursday, 16th of December, 1965. Sixty-six years ago today I was propelled from the womb. There were no electric trains, and motor cars were exciting curiosities. There was not even the thought of an aeroplane in the winter skies, and horse buses clopped through the London streets. There were no buses at all in Teddington. I can hardly believe that so much has happened in sixty-six years, but it has, and now men are whizzing about in outer space and taking photographs of the remote stars, which only goes to show that man is a very remarkable animal. I'm reading an excellent biography of Lytton Strachey by Michael Holroyd. It's a fascinating picture of the Bloomsbury lot. Oh, how fortunate I was to have been born poor. If mother had been able to afford to send me to a private school, Eton and Oxford, or Cambridge, it would have probably set me back years. 
I believe that had my early formative years been passed in more assured circumstances, I might quite easily have slipped into preciousness. As it was, I merely had to slip out of preciousness and bring home the bacon. The world of theatre is a strong forcing house, and I believe I knew more about the basic facts of life by the age of fourteen than the more carefully tutored knew at twenty-five. In any event, my own peculiar circumstances suited me, and on the whole, the results haven't been too bad. After which encouraging self-slap on the back, I will bring this entry to a close. The last entry in Noel Card's diaries is dated December thirty-first, nineteen sixty-nine. The author had no difficulty in creating a strong scene for the final curtain. I perceive that there has been no entry since September the seventh. With my usual watchful eye on posterity, I can only suggest to any wretched future biographer that he gets my engagement book and from that fills in anything he can find. Poor bugger! Personally, I have neither the will nor the strength to attempt the task. So, here we go firmly with December the thirty-first. A great deal has happened in the recent unrecorded months. I opened a national film theatre season of my films with In Which We Serve, which I am the first to admit is a rattling good movie. I wept steadily throughout, right from the very beginning when they were building the ship in the shipyard. The BBC gave a terrific seventieth birthday party for me at the Savoy, which was a terrific success. My birthday lunch was given by the darling Queen Mother at Clarence House. Where I received a crown-encrusted cigarette box from her, an equally crown-encrusted cigarette case from the Queen herself, and some exquisite cufflinks from Princess Margaret and Tony. During lunch, the Queen asked me whether I would accept Mr. Wilson's offer of a knighthood. I kissed her hand and said, in a rather strangulated voice, "Yes, ma'am." Apart from this, my seventieth birthday was uneventful. The knighthood ceremony takes place on February the fourth. Then we go to New York for about ten days, and at long last, my beloved Jamaica. Noel Coward from his diaries was edited and presented by Tony Stavaker. The reader was Simon Cadell, and the producer was Susan Roberts. And that was the last program in the series.